you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In just a moment, I'm going to read beginning in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As today we have our last sermon in the sermon series that we have entitled Connecting the Dots, the Gospel and Your Life. And if you haven't been here for the sermon series or you're just like me and you forget sometimes, the idea for the sermon series has been this. For those of us who have been in church for a while, or even if you haven't been in church for a while, but you grew up in the church, most of us in that situation can articulate an answer to the question, what is the gospel? If you gave us a written test, most of us would be able to write down something like, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Or if you've been here at Redeemer for a while, you might say the gospel is the good news that Jesus lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that I should have died so that I can have a relationship with God. And both of those are adequate answers. And if you're not sure what the gospel is, you'll hear it presented clearly today in the sermon as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But for those of us who do believe the gospel and embrace the gospel and are able to articulate what the gospel is, we have the this intuitive belief that it should make a difference in our everyday lives. But if you ask us that question on a test, we struggle a little bit to connect the dots between the gospel and our everyday life. Sure, we know it means that we'll go to heaven uh, when we die, uh, that we'll spend an eternity with God, that we avoid God's judgment in hell. But what exactly Does believing the gospel mean for our everyday lives? And we struggle to connect those dots. So what we've been doing in this sermon series is we take an event or an occurrence or some circumstance from everyday life, and I described that at the beginning. Then I do some teaching on the gospel, and then we connect the dots. And by doing that week after week, our prayer as a leadership has has been that we would develop as a people gospel instincts, that we would develop this skill of applying the gospel to our everyday life. And so we've talked about things like the gospel when I am bitter or angry, and we talked about that cinder block office that I was in, or uh, the gospel when I succeed, or the gospel when I fail, or the gospel when I'm embarrassed. That was the one about me in the classroom. We talked last week about the gospel when I'm feeling down. And today, we're going to talk about the gospel when I just don't feel like it. The gospel when I just don't feel it at all. If we're honest with one another, I think we have to admit that sometimes in our spiritual life, we're just not feeling it. We don't want to read God's word. We're just in a dry place. We, we can't find the words to pray. It's hard for us to sit and spend time with our heavenly father. And we just reach this place where we're really dry and we're just not feeling it. Or for some of us, we have spouses that feel that way, or we have a spouse that'll get that way for a season, or our children are that way. Or if you are in a small group, sometimes somebody in a small group or one of our Bible studies will say that they feel that way and express these feelings in words uh, like I have expressed. And our temptation 
It's just to tell these folks what to do. In our culture, we tend to say, you got to get more disciplined. Uh, you need to get in the Bible. You know how important Bible study is? Prayer avails much. You really need to get in the Word. And we have Bible verses. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. James chapter 5. And we say things that the Bible says, and we tell people what to do and how they need to be more disciplined. And all those things are true because they're biblical. And as a pastor, folks often bring others to me. They bring their spouse or they bring their children or they bring people for their small group and they say pastor will you just kind of beat them up with that black bible a little bit you know pull those verses out there's probably more that I don't know and just show them what they need to do because we want them to care more about their spiritual life what is it that draws a person to move closer to God what do we do when we're just not feeling it? Whether it's my own heart, my own spiritual life, whether it's my spouse, my child, someone in my community group or Bible study. What do we do with the gospel when we just don't feel like it? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 14 to the end of the chapter. I'll pray for us and we'll dig in and analyze how the gospel changes the situation when we're not feeling it. Hear now God's word from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised." From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then don't stop, look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're here today gathered in your presence. We have your book open before us, and we're just being honest that sometimes we're just not feeling it. We know you created all things. You are worthy of all honor and praise, and sometimes our hearts are just far away and cold. Will you show us what to do in that situation? Would you teach us now how to pastor our own hearts, how to pastor the hearts of our spouses, of our children, of those in our community group or our Bible studies, would you show us now how we should respond 
when we're just not feeling it. Please come and be our teacher. I pray that you'd be willing to use even the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher to teach us. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What is it that draws a person to move closer to God? What is it that moves us to a place where we want to spend time with God, where we want to read his word, where we have a, a desire, almost a burden to pray? What is it that moves us to a place where we want to do those things? Here's the simple answer. A love for God. A love for God. Think about it in some other area. If you love Alabama Crimson Tide football, love it. Can't get enough of it, right? You just love it. Nobody has to tell you to read about Alabama's latest recruiting class, right? You know it's the number one recruiting class in the nation and edged my Georgia Bulldogs out. That it's the number one recruiting class for the eighth time while Nick Saban has been the coach. You already know that. Nobody told you to read that. You wanted or you had a desire to read it. Nobody had to tell you to talk about it around the water cooler at the office. You wanted to talk about it. And so it goes for anything that we love, whether it's Alabama football. Maybe that's not what you love. Maybe you love reading about uh, where to catch the big fish. Maybe you like to read about decorating houses or decorating cakes. But whatever it is, if we have a love for something, then nobody has to tell us to read about it. Nobody has to tell us to think about it. It just happens. So there's the answer to our question. All we have to do in our own hearts when we're not feeling it, all we have to do for our spouses, for our kids, for those that are, all we have to do is stimulate love for God in their hearts. Then they'll spend time with him and pray. All right, let's pray. No. Kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Thanks for the answer. All we have to do is stimulate love for God. Um, Follow-up question. What stimulates love in our heart for God? What is it that leads us to have that kind of love for God? This past week, some of us were at a presbytery meeting in, for, at First Pres Tuscumbia, and we heard a great sermon from 1 John uh, chapter 4. And you can read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19 the answer to that question. How do we stimulate love in a person's heart for God? And of course what the scripture says is that we love him, we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. And that the love of God that we see and when we really begin to understand and we really begin to fathom the love for God and the love that he has for us We can't help but love him back. That his great love for us breaks our hearts. So to stimulate love for God, we have to assure people of God's love for them. And then they will love him and want to walk with him and want to meet with him in his word. Love for God is what moves people to want to spend time with him. And love for God comes from first seeing his love for us. So, step one 
when my own heart is not feeling it, when my spouse, when my family, when my kids, what do we do? We assure people of God's love for them. That stimulates their love for God. Then love for God is the fuel for walking with him. Love for God gives us the desire to want to be with him. So that's the first point. What is the first thing I do for my own heart or for someone else who's just not feeling it? Number one, we assure people of God's love for them. Look at verses 14 and 15 of the text. The apostle Paul has been accused in Corinth of just being crazy, being out of his mind. And here's what he says. Paul, why do you do the things that you do? And he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Your translation may say it compels us. It's a word that's very interesting. It's the same, he will hold me fast, we sing. It's a word that means to hold fast. It's a, use, it's a word that's used of prisoners when they are arrested, that we hold fast to them. It's a word sometimes used uh, when we catch uh, an illness, that we're seized with an illness, that it grips us. And Paul is saying that the love of Christ grabs us, holds us, controls us, compels us, arrests us, grips us, seizes us. And it does because he concluded that Jesus had died for him. And that in the death of Christ, he had died. That's what he says in verse 14. That the Lord of heaven, who was in a place of perfection where he was worshipped and where he was adored, where everybody loved him, where everybody did what he said to do, where everybody appreciated his greatness, that he left the perfection of heaven in order to come here to the earth to be mistreated and to be misunderstood, to live a life in poverty. Because Paul had concluded that God had demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still God's enemies and hating rebels of God, that God was willing to give his son for us. And Paul said, that kind of love grips me. It it has seized me. It controls me. It has arrested me. So we assure people of God's love for them. And listen, you can do this with any passage of Scripture. The Scripture just drips with the love of God for broken and messed up people who don't deserve it. You can go anywhere in the Scripture and find. So the first thing we do when people are not feeling it is we assure people of God's love for them. And then they begin to love God back. They're arrested, they're controlled, they're compelled by it when they see his great love for them and they want to walk in his ways. They no longer want to live for themselves, but they want to live for, for the one who is willing to give so much for them. And they have a desire to spend time with him. So number one, we assure people of God's love for them. Number two, we remind people of who they are in Christ. And listen, I'm not just always talking about other people. Sometimes we're reminding our own hearts of who we are in Christ. 
Sometimes when we're not feeling it or we feel defeated, we have to remind ourselves who we are in Christ. Sometimes that comes from listening to a sermon or from listening to a song or certainly from getting into the Scripture. But we have to remind ourselves, we have to remind others of who they are in Christ. Look at verse 17. Paul reminds the church at Corinth who they are. He says, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I remember memorizing that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, in discipleship when I was in high school. It's a glorious verse. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. It's a glorious verse about our identity in Christ. But if we're honest, many of us have to admit we believe the gospel. We come to church. We've done the things. We've been to the Bible study. Maybe there was a time that I was really gripped by the love of God. But I'm just not feeling it now. If I'm honest, I just don't feel like a new creation in Christ for many of us, if we're honest, we say, I'm not even really sure what that means. In many ways, I feel the same. I believe the gospel. I come to church. I've tried to read the Bible. I've tried to pray, but I feel the same. I look the same. I have the same body. I have the same clothes I had before. I struggle with the same anxieties and fears. I still feel the same anger. I still struggle with the same lusts. What does it even mean that we're a new creation in Christ? Well, the theologians say that we were once non passe, non picare. And if it's Latin, then you know it must be true, right? That has to be right if there's a Latin phrase for it. And so the theologians say that we were once not able not to sin, that separated from Christ, that apart from Christ, that even our best works are like what? Filthy rags. We know that one, don't we? That even our best works are like filthy rags before God. Because separated from Christ, even when we do good things, we want some glory for it. And we're robbing God of his glory even in the good things that we do. At best, we have mixed motives that we want God to get glory, but we want some glory too. Even our best efforts, when we do them in hiding, are still affected by our sin. And then, of course, then there are sinful actions. We're not able not to sin. That's what the theologians say, that we were once non passe, non picare, not able not to sin. So what does it mean to be a new creation in Christ? Does it mean that we never sin anymore? Oh, my goodness, I hope not, <laughs> because I still do. No, that's not what it means. And not just because that's not what I want it to mean. You can look later in 1 John chapter 1, 
verses 8 and verses 10 specifically say that if I say that I don't have any sin, that I'm a liar and I've made God out to be a liar. It's not that we don't struggle with sin anymore. Romans 6 and 7 and 8 assures us that we still have the flesh, those vestiges of the old man still in us that war against the spirit in us, and that we're going to struggle with sin until the day that we die. Even the best of believers do so. So it's not that we no longer sin. The theologians say that what it means to be a new creation in Christ is that we're now Passe non pecare. We're now able to not sin. And what they mean by that is this, that what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us, that what the Holy Spirit has convicted us of, those things that the Holy Spirit makes us aware of, the Holy Spirit doesn't just say, you have this in your life, and then leave us to deal with it. That when the Holy Spirit of God is in us, regenerating us, not only does he convict us of sin, but the indwelling Spirit gives us means to fight. And 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 assures us, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. We have to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ that you are indwelt by the spirit of the risen Christ and greater is he that is in you that is in the world. Listen, this is so important because Satan, because your own flesh, because the world will tell you, you have no power over this. You can't help it. Your, your parents were this way and you're, it's just genetic. The culture that you grew up in just made you this way. Your temperament just makes you this way. You were just born this way. The culture's going to tell you those things. They're going to tell you God made you this way, so it must be his fault. God says that is a lie. God says you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, that the power of the resurrected Christ lives in you if you are a believer, if you are in him, if you have embraced the gospel. And in Galatians 2 and verse 20, a very similar passage, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's what he says here, right? That we no longer live, right? And he says that in Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. How? By his spirit. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And what we're talking about here, and he now indwells me by his spirit. And what that means is that we have to remind people of who they are in Christ and of what God has provided for them. The Holy Spirit, the indwelling Christ inside of them. He convicts us of sin, and we talk about that. Holy Spirit convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit opens our minds to what's true. But listen, the Holy Spirit also empowers us to walk in God's ways. That was the prophecy in Ezekiel, right? It was the whole point of the new covenant. That's what makes the new covenant new, is that he takes away our heart of stone and he gives us our hearts of flesh and he puts his spirit in us so that we can walk in his ways. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen. Is anybody out there, this Presbyterians get nervous when you talk about the spirit. Let's not be nervous. Let's ask for more. Of the Spirit of God 
to invade our hearts because it's what we need. If you believe you're alone, if you believe that, that it's just all up to you, then you are already defeated. If you believe that you are weak, then you have no strength to fight sin and to walk in God's ways. If you believe that you just can't help it, then you have already lost the battle. But if by faith we come to the word and we read places like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we read him, we say, by faith I affirm what the Bible says. I have read the word and it says I am a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Greater is he that is in me than he is in the world. And this reminder of who I am and what God provides gives me strength to fight. That's step one. We assure people of God's love for them. Makes them love him back. Second, we remind people of who they are in Christ. That they're a new creation. That they have the spirit of Christ in them. That yes, convicts them of sin. And yes, opens their minds to the truth. Don't stop there, Presbyterian. But also gives us power to walk in God's ways. Third thing we do. We say, hey, God loves you. We assure him of God's love. Second, we remind them of who they are in Christ. And then the third thing we say is, now go fight for your relationship with Jesus. Go fight for it. Go labor. Notice, we still tell people what the Bible says to do. There's a movement talking about sanctification now that says you just preach the gospel to yourself. You just tell people who they are in Christ and then you stop. And that's wrong and it's not biblical. But we don't only tell people what to do. That tends to be what our problem is. And this new movement is an overreaction to that. It's both and, right? That we tell people what is true and what to do. And by the way, we lead with what is true until we, before we get to what to do. And by the way, it's two-thirds what is true and only one-third what to do. <laughs> Assure them of God's love, one Remind them of who they are in Christ, two, then tell them what to do, three. You see it in the text. Verse 15 says, he died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. There are still things Paul tells us to do. In verse 20 he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And he says something interesting that I want you to catch here. I want you to see this. This is confusing. It doesn't fit in a neat theological box. It doesn't fit in a nice, neat theological category. I'm not even sure I have uh, theological names for it. The theologians don't have a Latin phrase for it. But it's what the Bible teaches, and so I want you to see it. Look with me. Verse 18. Paul says, all this is from God. All of this is from God. That it's all of God. Then look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Working together with him then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Do you hear that? This is all of God. But you are to be working together with him. How do you reconcile those? I don't know. What do you call that? What view of sanctification is that? I don't know. But it's what the Bible teaches. 
I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10 where he says, I worked harder than all of them, talking about the other apostles. He says, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. I'm glad we're singing that later, right? I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God. Well, which is it, Paul? It's both and. Well, that's weird. Maybe he just said that to the Corinthian church. No, to the Philippian church. What does he say in in chapter 2 and verse 12? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's an imperative. That's telling people what to do. That sounds like some work to me since he says work out your salvation with fear. Evidently, that's going to take some work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then you know what verse 13 says? For it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Well, which is it, Paul? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Or God, is it where it's both and? One more. You're getting the point, but I'm just having too much fun. The Colossian church. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 29. Paul is talking about what it takes to present people mature in Christ. That's the context. Exactly what we're talking about here of what happens when we're not feeling it. Paul, when he talks about what, ha- what do we do, what he has done to present people mature in Christ. In Colossians 1.29 he says, to this end I labor, struggling. Listen to me Christian, if you think... That the Christian life doesn't involve work or labor or struggling, then you have a misconception about the Christian life. Because of the flesh that still remains in you and because of the brokenness that remains in the world and because of an adversary we have called the devil, this life is work. And it's labor, and it's struggling, and I don't ever want you to hear me say anything that takes anything away from that, because that is true, and it's what the Bible teaches. And Paul in Colossians 1 and verse 29 says, I labor, struggling with what? Watch this. With all his energy that he powerfully works in me. (laughs) Well, which is it? It's both and. So we work hard, and we call others to do so. But we don't lead with that. Our first answer is not get, our first answer is not get better, do better, be more disciplined, organize your life better. Listen, you are not the answer to your problems. You're the problem. Let's not call people to be the answer to their own problems. Because we're setting them up for failure and we're calling them to work and to live out of their own flesh. We call others to do things, but we don't lead with that. And it is certainly not the whole story. In fact, it's not half the story. It's about a third of it, right? So if all we do is tell people what to do, even if we have a verse in the Bible that says that's what they're supposed to do, we're still not taking a biblical approach because what the Bible does is it starts with assuring people of God's love for them, of assuring them of their position in Christ and who they are and their status and their identity, and then calls them to do what the Bible tells them to do. And that's how we want to move people as well. So let's connect the dots. What do I do 
for my own heart when I feel far away and cold? What do I do for my spouse when they're just like, I'm not feeling, I can't read scripture, I just am not there, I can't pray. What do we do for our kids when they get there, for people in our small group? Following the pattern of scripture, number one, we assure them of God's love for them. Listen, get in the word, I know it's hard, but God's love is just dripping in there for broken and messed up people. It's there, find it and point out, assure them of God's love for them, that's number one. It is fuel for their fight. It gives them the desire, the want to. Second, we remind them of who they are in Christ. That gives them the strength that they need for the fight, that you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that you have died, that Christ lives in you, that you are a new creation, that the old is gone, that the new has come. That outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. We remind one another of our status. And then third, we tell people what to do. We exhort them. Go fight for your relationship with Jesus. Work hard. Be reconciled to God. Be ambassadors for Christ. Discipline yourself better. Spend your money better. Spend your time better. We are still calling people to do what the Bible tells them to do. But we're not leading with that. And it's not the whole story. Let's just confess that as 21st century Americans who are pragmatic and practical, that our temptation is to go straight to telling people what to do. We want to fix the problem and move on. And I got a Bible verse that supports what I'm saying. And it makes us feel spiritual. But think about what we do when we do that. You're doing one of two things. You're either calling people in their flesh to do what the Bible calls them to do, and what you're doing is you're sending them into the fight alone, just with themselves, instead of with the Holy Spirit of God. You're calling them to operate out of their flesh. We do that with our children. And what happens is one of two things. They either succeed... I organize my life so that I'm spending time in the Word. That's me, like the type A personality types. I've organized my life where I check the box and I'm having a quiet time every day and I'm praying every day. And what happens? We get self-righteous. Because I'm wondering why you can't organize your life. Here's a PowerPoint presentation I've got on how you can do better. And we have an edge. And we're self-righteous because we think we've done something and instead of it being... Christ in me. We either get self-righteous, or you know the other thing is? Self-pity. People who are not type A like me, they don't organize. It just doesn't work. And they silently say, this Christianity thing just doesn't work for me. And they slowly slip away from the church Maybe try several, but when Christianity just doesn't work for them, then they gradually just slip away. When what they're really moving away from is a legalism or a moralism that is not the good news of the gospel at all. Or they're married to type A people like me who are self-righteous, and so they keep coming to church with them, but they sit there and they're real quiet and they don't say anything because they really believe this isn't working for them. And the church is full of those kind of folks. 
we got to lead with what is true. Then tell people what to do. If all we do is tell people what to do, we're not connecting them to the only power that there is to do what the Bible calls them to do. We have to lead with what's true because it is the truth and the beauty of the gospel that remakes our hearts so that we want to do what the Bible says to do and connects us with the only power to do what we're called to do. Listen, newsflash. Most people in the church know they need to spend time in prayer and in God's word. They've probably heard that before. What they lack is the motivation, the desire, the power, the ability. Let's remind them what to do. (laughs) But let's first empower them with what is true. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would just forgive us that we're so quick to run to to the commands of Scripture. We're so quick just to give answers And we run right past what you have done for us, what you have done in us. Oh, Lord, just forgive us. I pray that even now you would put on people's hearts, maybe spouses or or children or relationships that they've had, that they've just told people what to do. I pray that you would convict them now and that, that, that they would have a conversation with them, confessing that their approach has been wrong. And that, yes, the Bible calls us to do those things, but we haven't called them to those things in the right way. Because we haven't called them to those things the way that you call us. God, forgive us. I pray that you would heal our hearts, that you would help us to love people well, that you would be at work in our hearts even when we're not feeling it. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.